1: Mysterious Circumstances is an American Crime Cast production. Remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in
0: a court of law. Alright, this is uh, Justin with Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. Welcome to this episode where we will be discussing the Velisca axe murders of 1912 and i say we will be discussing because ellie has agreed to join me again she really wanted to do this case and a great case and i loved having her on last time so she came back for more uh, we're going to go ahead and get into this episode and i think ellie's going to be leading us off
1: hey justin um just wanted to say thank you again so much for having me uh on the show i really really had a good time last time and um, it's great to be back and um uh, for everybody that put up with me, all of Justin's regular listeners, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, and a special shout out to Ashley from Utah. Um, I understand you've been saying some really nice things to Justin about me. So thank you for that. <laughs> it, honestly, it does mean a lot. So uh, I thought we'll we'll start off with the timeline uh, of the crime. So this is the uh, Velisca axe murder case, as Justin said Um it's a case back from uh, 1912, to so just over 100 years old now. It's a really, really famous case. And if you're from the American Midwest, you've probably heard of this case before. It's a serial axe murder case of an entire family and two guests. The Moore family was comprised of Josiah Moore, who we're going to call Joe, uh, because I understand he went by Joe as a nickname. He was 43 years old in 1912 his wife Sarah Moore she was 39 and they had four children uh, their oldest was Herman Montgomery he was 11. Uh, they had uh only one daughter Mary Catherine she was 10. um then it was Arthur Boyd who was seven and the youngest was um Paul Paul Vernon and he was five and uh, on the day in question They had uh, two guests over, so um, Mary Catherine was friends with uh, two girls, the Stillinger girls. They were invited to spend the night on the night of June the 9th, 1912. So we have Ina May and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, I believe they were eight, Uh, I think, the eldest. Yeah, that's it. Lena was 12, she was the oldest. So as I said, Mary Catherine invited them to spend the night. June the 9th uh, was a special day for the Moore family, Uh, they were very prominent in their community and in their Presbyterian church and uh, it was the Children's Day programme that day Um, and I understand the festivities, uh, it was was mostly an evening uh, type of event and the festivities finished around 9.30 in the evening. And uh, it it was attended by uh, many people in in the town, including the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls. The Moore family and the Stillingers walked back to the Moore's house um, and they arrived back between uh, what we think is 9.45 to 10pm. And in what would transpire to be a rather cruel twist of fate, um, the Stillinger children were actually supposed to be staying with their grandmother that evening. And um they have decided at the last minute to stay with the Moore family that night because they and this is what Justin's told me so feel free to jump in here, Justin. <laughs> but <laughs> I believe that um on the evening in question the, the street lights weren't working and the, the two girls did not want to walk to their grandmother's house in the dark by themselves which is understandable so um Joe Moore uh, called up the Stillinger home and left a message with the girl's elder sister Blanche that they would be spending the night uh, with him and his family that evening so as I said uh, we, we think that they arrived home between 9.45 and 10pm and that's um, that's kind of where we leave the story until the following morning so on June the 10th uh, 1912 at 7am Uh, the Moor's next door neighbour, Mary Peckham, um, had become worried because she had noticed that there was no activity in or around the Moor home that morning and um, that was very uncharacteristic. Uh, The Moor house, as you can probably imagine with four children and two parents, was a very busy household. They had chickens. Um, They were very prominent in their community and Mary Peckham, the neighbour, noticed when when they didn't seem to be about so they, um she she went to their house and knocked on the door nobody answered she tried to open the door but it was locked and um I'm not sure if you found out anything more about this Justin but um I actually couldn't seem to get a straight answer on whether they usually kept their door locked or if that was unusual um I've read conflicting accounts that a lot of people in that down at that time would leave the door unlocked, but I've heard also that it was customary for the moors to lock their door at night. So, did you hear anything about
0: that? Yeah, I heard. uh Apparently, according to his brother, when his brother was uh during the court proceedings and stuff, he actually said that it was regular for them to to lock their doors.
1: Oh, okay, that's that's good then that we got some clarity on that. So, yeah,
0: because um, I, I, I read, read a lot of that point. until I heard <laughs> that and like actually read that, I had heard a lot of different things or read a lot of different things but I I took that as, as pure fact if it's coming from his brother.
1: Yeah, I think, I think um, it's safe to take that as fact because if he if anyone would know, it would be Joe Moore's brother. Yeah. But that's good to clear up some confusion there. So I, I, presumably when Mary Peckham tried the door and found it locked, that in and of itself was not particularly alarming to her. Um, anyway, when she, can't, when she can't get into the house, she lets out the Moore's chicken because they had been uh, locked up in their coop all night and she calls on bros moore who as justin just mentioned was the brother of joe moore so bros comes up knocks on the door and uh, just like mary he does not get a response um he has a copy of the house key uh, so he unlocks the door and goes in and um from what i've heard he really is not he's not in the house for very long at all um he tells mary to stay on the porch he enters goes into the parlour and uh, from the parlour there's there's a door which leads to the guest bedroom which is the bedroom that the Stillinger girls were sleeping in. He opens the door and finds that both children had been killed in their sleep. He immediately leaves the home and asks Mary Peckham to summon uh, the village uh, peace officer which is like the law enforcement officer um, Hank Horton. And Justin did you want to kind of take over from here and describe what Hank found in yeah. the
0: house? Yeah we can do that the marshal arrives at about 8:30 a.m uh along with a hundred of the townspeople from what i understand and what i've read the marshal himself who was actually quite a young i think he was only like 26 or 27 at the time he pretty much said that he couldn't really keep people out he had he said he would bring them out the front door and they'd come in the back door he said at one point in time there's about a hundred people in that tiny little house Pretty much trampling the evidence. Some of them were in there collecting souvenirs, one of which was a piece of Joe Moore's skull, and that is a proven fact. Basically, what they believe is that the killer supposedly walks in the front door, skips the uh, first bedroom where the Stillinger sisters are, Heads directly up the stairs, which is a very tight staircase, without making a sound, mind you. Passes the other children's room and goes straight to attack Joe. So they assume what happens is Joe is attacked first, upstairs in the bedroom. He is hit with the blunt end of the axe, uh, right directly in the head, which initially kills him. Uh, then the wife... Then they goes to the four more children's room, kills all four of them, and then goes back downstairs and hits the, uh, the two Stillinger sisters. One of which actually had defensive wounds on her arms. I believe it was uh, Lina or Lena. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, she is the only one to actually have any kind of marks below the neck. We'll get into some of the evidence here and try to try to get in on that story into a little bit more specifics, but all the doors and windows were locked. All the windows had the shades drawn. That's why nosy Nancy neighbor couldn't really see anything and ended up calling the brother. All the mirrors and pictures were covered. Uh, one of the mirrors actually was covered with a piece of a skirt that was taken from the closet. Down in the bedroom uh, of where the Stillinger sisters were sleeping when they were when they were murdered, uh, they had part of a chain from either a watch or a keychain that was found, but that was also found beside a, and I've heard and read various reports on this, a two to four pound slab of bacon wrapped in a towel. Uh, and that was, like I said, down in the downstairs bedroom uh, where the Stillinger sisters were. Also in that bedroom, and very specifically, was a lamp. Now, this was an old old oil lamp, not like a regular house lamp, but the chimney on it was not there. The wick on it was split, and it was cut very short. That was found by the bed. Now, they say that the reason that it was done like this was because it wouldn't shed very much light uh, when the killer or killers... We're walking around uh, the house. Nobody could really see the light from the outside of the house or in the inside. It basically would shed just enough to see to uh, get around. Also found in that downstairs bedroom was the axe that was used in the murders. And that was found on the south wall of the bedroom. Uh, Like I had mentioned, uh, Lina, or Lena, she was found the only one with uh, defensive wounds on her arm. Most of the victims were hit anywhere from 20 to 30 times and none of it was below the neck with the exception of the young lady downstairs. Joe got the worst of it. He was hit over 30 times. Only the first time was the blunt force.
1: I actually heard that Joe was um, hit so severely that he was missing his eyes.
0: That is correct. Thank you for that gory detail. (laughs) (laughs) now it was it was brutal, like I had mentioned, there were no wounds below the neck. There were cigarette butts found in the attic uh, at one point, the axe had hit the ceiling and busted some of the plaster on the ceiling and the thing that's really weird about that is there's a lot of a lot of discussion about the the killer getting so excited that they were wielding the axe one handed and hit the ceiling but the the weird fact about that is, is is that part of the ceiling that the axe actually hit was not close to the bodies anywhere it was out in the middle of the room away from the bodies so it's a pretty safe argument to say that it was not done while the murders like actually in stroke of hitting them uh, there were no fingerprints found. And uh, McLaughlin who was a, at the time, he was an expert in fingerprinting, which we all know in you know, 1912 probably wasn't the best expert by any means, but he had actually discovered by a blood splatter analysis that the killer was more than likely left-handed. And pretty much what the coroner... And some of the other guys came up with, well, actually, before that, there was a, what was it? There was a bowl of uh, bloody water found before we get yeah, there. Yeah, in
1: the kitchen. In
0: the kitchen, where they where they think that the uh, killer had actually washed up before they had left. Uh, the killer actually apparently ate a meal afterward. Uh, and there was, back in their barn, there was some hay that it had looked like somebody had actually laid on it was compressed down and along with that there was a knot hole facing the house to where the killer if they were hiding in the barn supposedly was watching the family um supposedly what the coroner and during the investigation came up with is that it's a pretty safe bet that the killer knew what was going on he knew where he was going because he literally, there's a lot of theories on whether or not he was actually in the house beforehand because of the cigarette butts in the attic or I also had read that he might've been hiding in the closet. Uh, From everything that I've read though, the closet was probably not likely because there was a lot of stuff in here and this was actually a pretty small house for six people, let alone two more spending the night. Like I said, all their faces were covered uh, with either blankets clothing or anything of that nature uh the mirrors the pictures were also covered like i had mentioned and then uh, they had found all that stuff in the barn they suspect that the killer had came in uh during the night knew pretty much where joe was going to be and that he would be the biggest threat because from what i understand joe was actually a pretty uh healthy sized guy
1: yeah he was he was bigger than six foot tall
0: yeah that's what i heard he was pretty decent shape for his age and everything and i mean back then i mean you know everybody was in pretty decent shapes. they're out there chopping wood and whatever else all day so other than that they they say that he definitely either had knowledge of the house or the family or where they were slept or he was either Either that or he was casing the place out for quite a bit, whether it was one or more people. Other than that, I can't really think of too much evidence that was really involved in it. They say that the killer actually went up there, hit Joe first, then hit his wife, then the four kids, and he all hit him with the blunt end first, went downstairs, killed the two uh, Stillinger sisters, and then went back upstairs and started in with the massacre that pretty much occurred um the reason he used the blunt end first was because so he didn't wake anybody up that and there would also have to have been possibly prior knowledge of using an axe because and this is the goriness of it is using the sharp end of an axe if you put it into something it's going to take you a second to pull it back out so
1: I just to add on to what you said there, Justin, um I, I did hear the same thing about the killer using the blunt end of the axe, but um I understood that Joe Moore was the only victim who had received a blow with the sharp end of the axe and I think that would tie in with what you were saying earlier about the killer needing to disable Joe because obviously in that house Joe would have been the biggest threat and he obviously wanted to absolutely disable Joe with that first hit and then after that all the other victims were taken out with the blunt end of the axe
0: yeah and they were literally uh, the ones that I'm not sure if one or two of them didn't have their faces covered, but every single one of them was unrecognizable.
1: Yeah the faces were destroyed.
0: They were they were destroyed and there's a lot of theories on why that was done, why the pictures and the and the mirrors were covered, you know probably being ashamed of what you had done or what you were doing or trying to distance yourself from it. Um, We'll get more into that, the theories and stuff like that, but that is pretty much all the evidence. I mean, there really wasn't too much to go on. There probably might have been more, but they had a lot of people going in and out of that house right off the bat, so...
1: Actually, um, just to to come back on something you said earlier about the, uh, smoked cigarette butts that were in the attic, um, of the house, something that. Um, I I didn't necessarily read this anywhere but it just occurred to me was um, do we actually know whether either Joe or Sarah Moore were smokers Um, or indeed any of the police or investigating officers who came through the house were smokers because whilst it's quite possible that they were left by a killer I think uh, it's possible that maybe maybe sir that was working may have left his cigarette butts there Uh, to me it's hard to say for sure that that was from the killer
0: no, that's actually a really good point because, I mean, with all the people that were in that house and you had one marshal trying to control that many people, it yeah. is definitely not out of the realm of possibility that somebody was up in the attic just smoking some cigarettes, you know?
1: <laughs> I mean, after a site like that, you probably would need a cigarette.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure I would, too. <laughs> and there's, I believe there's actually one person who's straight up... I mean, they... When people said that, hey, you know what happened in that house? And they said, you know, if you go in there, you were you will never forget what you see for the rest of your life, you know. And, of course, morbid curiosity takes over. So everybody's like, well, now I got to see it, you know. Now I have yes. to see it because you told me that.
1: Morbid curiosity.
0: Yeah. And a lot of the thing, too, about the whole hay being compressed in the barn with the quote-unquote knot holes. yes. I don't... Here's the deal. Like, I grew up out in the country. Okay, we had a barn. We had a hayloft. We did... You know, we used to Tarzan swing out of the hayloft door on a second story onto, you know, hay on the ground. Like, stupid shit. And there were four kids, and there were also horses. So, I'm not really seeing how people could say that that's where the killer slept or waited, you know, for all the lights to go out I, to go I in there and kill. That. You know, yeah. it's,
1: I mean, it's it's possible that was the killer, but you can't say that for sure, particularly with not four but six kids in the house that day.
0: Exactly. Who
1: may well have been out playing in the barn.
0: Exactly. But I will say this, though the killer had either cased the place out or knew where certain things were because great, yeah. yeah because to uh to skip right by the two rooms with the kids and go straight for joe first unless you knew where he was sleeping that's going to be hard and then we were talking earlier about the steps so i mean like that's the only part of it that makes sense that the killer might have been up in the attic because from what i understand this the steps were very very loud and creaky so it was either somebody very fast or like super quiet or was already in the house at the time to not literally like not wake yeah. anybody up. They think that the one stillinger girl actually might have woken up. She was the only one because of the somewhat defensive wounds. Um there was also like no sign of any kind of, you know, sexual misconduct with any of the ladies mm. in the house, but there is one theory about the bacon. And I'm pretty sure you might have heard this too. Is oh, that I feel I'd
1: forgotten about <laughs> it, but now you mention
0: it, I remember it again, Justin. Uh, <laughs> somebody presented the theory that the bacon was actually used as a masturbation tool. Either, you know, after they murdered eight people with an axe, huge slab of fucking bacon was literally <laughs> sitting, like, I... in the fucking room downstairs. And they suggest it basically because one of the Stillinger sisters had either no undergarments or her undergarments were pulled down a little bit and her nightgown was pulled up over her face i mean that could have been out of the defense you know she was the one actually that had the wounds on her arm or whatnot
1: yeah that that was lena but um what what one of the doctors who examined the bodies and looked at the crime scene said was it had appeared as though she'd wriggled down the bed as she tried to get away from her attacker and if you can imagine sliding down a bed and you're wearing a nightgown that would naturally roll it up yes and if she was not wearing undergarments and uh, you know, as as the doctor said, there was no sign of sexual molestation on any of the victims. So, yeah. I actually, my personal opinion on that is that that was just something that happened as she tried to Man. slide away.
0: No, I definitely agree with you on that one. I mean, I could, you know, seeing it like scenario form, I could definitely, definitely see that happening. But it's just the bacon, you know, the hell. I mean, the killer apparently had washed his uh, either his or their hands. Uh, in that bowl of water before they had left, and the killer actually lingered around from anywhere from one to three hours after the murder and ate a meal, from what I understand. You know, it's just, it's a really odd one, because we're gonna get into here, you know, pretty shortly. A couple suspects in this case, and there's a really, really, (laughs) there's a lot of good arguments for (laughs) some of them, including the, the creepy preacher that dude was weird. I don't know how much detail he got into that, but that dude was weird as shit. Did
1: you, did you want to start with the suspects now, then?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead and lead us off, Ellie, if you want to. I know <laughs> sure. you I know um, you got your favorite one.
1: <laughs> I have, but I'm actually um, going to start with my least favorite, or the one that I think is least likely to have been responsible for the crime. Um, All right. That was... Um, a, a person by the name of Andrew Sawyer. I don't yep. know if you came across him at all in your reading.
0: Yeah, yes, not so, too um, much. So I'm glad you you did more on that one.
1: <laughs> so um, Andrew Sawyer was um, a transient, and um, he, from what I gathered when I was doing my reading, there wasn't really any concrete evidence against him. Um, the bulk of the evidence against Andrew Sawyer seems to come from um, a person called Thomas Dyer. So um, on on the morning of the murders, um, Andrew came to... Um, Thomas Dyer who was um working with the Burlington Railroad and that was in Creston which was um just approximately uh, just less than one hour away by car from Villisca uh, nowadays so you know relatively close by and on the morning of the murders he he came to Thomas Dyer um, who was at the Burlington Railroad and asked for a job and you know what with Labour being in short supply at the time Thomas Dyer gave him a job and um because he was the foreman of the Burlington Railroad. And basically the sort of the entire evidence I can find against Andrew Sawyer seems to come from Thomas Dyer or his son, um, which instantly kind of puts red flags up for me, because, you know, when when all of the information is coming from one person or one family, that could be a bit biased. On on the morning of the murders, um, which was Andrew Sawyer's first day working under Thomas Dyer at the Burlington Railroad, he purchased a newspaper which had a front page account of the murders, and um, according to Thomas Dyer, Andrew was quote much interested in it. The other workers that worked with uh, Andrew Sawyer underneath Thomas Dyer um, said that they found Andrew very odd because he slept with his uh, he slept in his clothes, and uh, was very anxious to be by himself. And he slept with an axe. Yeah. And so I, I mentioned to Justin there. Uh, that if I lived in a in a town where a, a whole family had been brutally murdered with an axe, I probably would be sleeping with an axe as well. So yeah. I don't hold that against him. No. Um. He, he apparently he apparently talks a lot about the crime and whether the killer had been apprehended. Uh, but again, I imagine everybody in town would have been talking about that, and you know it it would have been absolute headline news in that town and probably nationally. Yeah he told Dyer that he'd been in Villisca on the night of the murders um, but was afraid of being a suspect and had left for Creston and um, I, I guess that would be the one thing that is a bit more suspicious to me um, but you know that's that's about as, as uh, incriminating as it gets with regard to Andrew Sawyer yeah. um, so uh, Dyer eventually turned Sawyer over to the police on June 18th uh, and um, He apparently, uh, Dyer said that Sawyer was apparently rubbing his hands on his head um, and jumped up and said, I will cut your goddamn heads off and began uh, making striking motions with an axe, which, uh, you know, again, uh, Dyer found very suspicious. And uh, the the last bit of evidence claims that Sawyer showed exactly where the killer got out of town, where he'd left footprints in the soggy ground, And, yeah, apparently he was able to tell Jr. exactly how uh, the killer would have left town on the night in question. Um, So, as as I said, to me, this doesn't hold too much water just because all of the evidence is coming from one family, and particularly when that family is employing another because Andrew Sawyer was a lazy worker, or, you know, maybe they just didn't like him.
0: Yeah. Do
1: you have any thoughts there, Justin?
0: No, I mean, that was pretty much... All I had really read on him, uh, you actually found a lot more stuff than I did. So thank you for that. But no, I pretty much heard the same thing. Just that he would brag, and I mean, all of his coworkers agreed the dude was great with an axe, and that he slept with it, <laughs> you know. And I mean, he was a vagrant, but I mean, at that point in time, it was there were in this town of Vallisca it was a train community. There There's train tracks running right through it. There were literally 30 trains a day that went through Villisca. So it's... And it was at this point, you know, in time, it was totally... It's not unheard of for vagrants or... It was not totally unheard of at this point in time for people to hop off trains looking for work randomly. So it's... Yeah. You know, there were a lot of passerbys. Lots of passerbys. And like I said, 30 trains a day in, through this town that stopped... I mean, even even if they didn't stop, when they would pass the school, they had to slow down to about 10 miles an hour. So, yeah, I mean, you so see people... could
1: jump on or jump off. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. So, no, I totally agree with you on that one. I, I was not a big fan of that theory. I mean, yeah, there's some weird shit. The guy was might have been a little bit odd, but, you know, if yeah. we accused everybody who was odd you know of of murdering people i'm pretty sure every single person listening to this podcast is gonna <laughs> and go to
1: prison say that. <laughs>
0: yeah because <laughs> we're all a little strange you know
1: um, and just um just before we leave andrew sawyer as a suspect um he did have an alibi although i personally don't put too much uh, stock in this alibi just because um Well, basically, the the alibi was that there was a sheriff in nearby Osceola um, who put Andrew Sawyer on a train um, at about 11pm on the night of the murders and sent him away uh, because he was loitering. Um, But just from... Looking at Google Maps, it, it seems to me like it would have still been possible for um, Andrew Sawyer to have made it to the house, the Moore house, on that evening, mm-hmm. and then back to Creston in the morning in time to ask for a job. So, um, personally, that alibi doesn't mean too much to me. But um, yeah. just for the reasons we've already outlined, I, I really don't think Andrew Sawyer was the person responsible here.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't either. And part of that reason is just because of some of the other suspects and theories that we'll get into because that one probably is the weakest one out of all of them and that one's still a pretty good one
1: it basically he's a transient and he was a bit weird and that's about the size of it
0: that's pretty much what it came down to and actually there was as we'll get into a large number of murders going on around the midwest during that time so yes it was it was common for transients and vagrants and You know, people riding the rails looking for work to actually carry weapons, so... I don't find that too weird, I guess. But, do you want to do the next one, or do you want me to? Uh,
1: do you want to just... Ultimate?
0: Alright, uh... Next one, I would have to say, would be... Frank Jones. And Frank Jones would be directly associated with another suspect of ours, which... Ellie will probably, I don't know, maybe take over from that. But Frank Jones was uh, a person who did not like Joe more very much. He was a bank president in town. He was a store owner. And he was a state representative. And, uh, you know, along with all that, he was also Joe's former boss. Both of them used to work at, uh, I believe it was a hardware store or a, uh, a tractor parts store or something like that. Yep but uh and actually one of their biggest uh biggest customers or not really customers but yeah clients yeah was uh john deere which is located right there in the midwest but basically it said that uh frank jones actually worked for josiah moore at one point in time and he had actually saved up enough money and actually bought part of that uh, business well he became joe's boss and he was wanting Joe to work just stupid hours, you know. He, he actually wanted him to work from, I think it was 6 or 7 in the morning until 10 or 11 at night, uh, 6 yeah, days I was a like week. Yeah, I that too. Yeah, and basically uh, Joe got a little bit upset, so he decided to start his own business right across the street. And the thing about it was was that at that point in time, John Deere did not believe that uh, Frank Jones was representing or trying to sell their products good enough. So when Joe Moore came to them with a proposal about opening up his own store, John Deere actually fronted part of that money for him to open up his own store right across the street. So in doing that, he took John Deere as a client with him. And obviously that pissed Frank Jones off. (laughs) Um, so, Justin,
1: if I could just, sorry, uh, interrupt you no, here. No, please. Um, just, just because um, you know, being um, English, I actually didn't know what John Deere was until I came <sighs> to research this case. So, for all of the international listeners, do you want <sighs> to elaborate on that?
0: <laughs> yeah, John Deere is a is a, basically a tractor company, and along with Ford, it is probably well one of the three major major tractors. In the, in the US and that is I find that hilarious that you didn't know what John Deere was <laughs> and I, yeah apparently it's
1: quite a big deal in the uh,
0: oh yeah they've been around for company. for a long time and, and granted I mean it's it's one of those deals at this point in time where you're literally paying for the name um, but uh, they still actually make fairly good quality uh product but yes they are a huge for all you international folks they are huge huge tractor maker um one of the three biggest so but yeah giving up losing all that money and you know for the for the store there that that's what pissed frank off and you know he literally moved opened up a store right across the street it was it was pretty bad it's not a good situation and on top of that (laughs) there is evidence that uh, Frank Jones' daughter-in-law which would be his son's wife was having an affair with Josiah Moore and how we know this is because back in the day when you needed uh, switchboard operators (sighs) some of them ladies would decide to listen in on the conversations so I will say this according to everything I read um, his daughter-in-law was not just sleeping with Joe Moore she was pretty much the town slut from what I understand you know I hate throwing that out there like that but she was having numerous affairs with men all over town so at the end of the day I'm not seeing why he's any more pissed off at Joe I mean I could see it just because of the whole other business situation but at the same time Frank Jones was a bank president he was a state representative that was getting prepped up to be governor, so he was not exactly hurting for money. Um, I mean, I'm sure it pissed him off like on a personal level, just like insulting. That basic theory that he actually did it uh, is kind of thrown out the window. Of that and I think he was what 57 when this happened. At this point in time, in the early 1900s, the average life expectancy was right around 60. So for him to wield this axe the way he did, I mean, it just really doesn't fit. But he does have a very, very good motive. I mean, he was one of them guys, it was one of them situations where if he saw Joe Moore on the street, he would literally avoid him at all costs because he hated him that much. Along with the fact that he was, you know, screwing his son's wife or whatever, but, you know. Um, but there is another theory that he actually hired somebody to, uh, to do this murder. And I know you like this guy, right?
1: <laughs> yes, um, William Mansfield. So um, the, the theory is that Frank um, Jones, obviously, really had it in for desire more just for the reasons that Justin just outlined. And um, he not being able to carry out the crime himself... Hired um, William Mansfield to to essentially carry out the murders for him, um, and I think th- the evidence against uh, William Mansfield um, is, stems a lot from um, the fact that he had actually um, murdered his wife, his child, um, and his mother and father-in-law with an axe two years after the Vliska murders. Um, so he obviously had it in him to commit a crime like this and he was convicted of these crimes this wasn't this wasn't a rumored thing this was fact and i think um there's there was evidence um well, most of what i found out about william Mansfield kind of tied back to a string of uh, axe murders that occurred throughout the american midwest and um in colorado around the time of the blisker murders but um Actually, I might pass this back to you, Justin, because you know a bit more about this uh, crime spree than I do, so Uh, you probably will do it more justice.
0: This is definitely my favorite. I hate saying favorite in that way, but at the end of the day, it's really good. And this is the (laughs) basic serial killer theory. And from September of 1911 until about 1914, there were, I believe, 10 or 11 deaths that fit the same M.O. as the Velisca Axe Murder. Uh, The first one being in Colorado Springs, there was a family of six that was murdered with an axe. Uh, There were two incidents in Monmouth, Illinois. Uh, Three to five people were killed in each of those, and they used a pipe in that. The next one, or actually two, were in Kansas. Uh, Both of those were with an axe, and there was one uh, the one in Ellsworth, Kansas was actually three to five people as well the other one in Kansas with two people both of those with axes Uh, there was one in Missouri that was two people a mother and a daughter also was done with an axe and all of these crimes were committed along a railroad track now the thing about it is, is everybody's like well maybe that's coincidence maybe not but here's here's the fun part about this stuff eight out of these ten kill or murders the weapons were abandoned at the scene just like uh, Velisca, which all of these murder weapons were actually of the homeowners weapons they were not weapons that just showed up and like the only two weapons were pipes and axes. They all belonged to the homeowners as if, you know, crime of opportunity. 7 out of the 10 were very close to the train tracks within a mile. 3 out of the 3 out of the 10 including Velisca happened on a Sunday night. 3 out of the 10 also including Velisca uh, all had lamps the exact same way as Veliska, They had the wick split cut short with no chimney on them. Four of out of the ten all the victims faces were covered with some kind of fabric or clothing of some sort. Three out of these ten washed their hands in a bowl of water after the crime and five out of these ten lingered in the house afterward for one to three hours.
1: Don't tell yeah. me
0: that's the same person. You want to talk about coincidence. That is some coincidence <laughs> right there. Um, it should be noted, too, that uh, Mansfield actually worked for the railroad. Man, when he got sent to trial, I can't remember if Ellie brought it up or not, but actually what got him out of the Velisca murders was the fact that he was able to provide pay stubs uh, from his job that
1: proved he was in Illinois
0: that proved he was in Illinois my whole thing on that is if he was actually hired by somebody who had political power like a state representative who was getting ready to be governor that it's a possibility um, it could be one of those things where you're contacting another politician saying hey forge how hard would it be to forge pay stubs in 1912 Most people didn't even have IDs. You know what I'm saying? It's like you could say you were whoever, and nobody would know the difference. Um, But it should be noted that Mansfield did work for the railroad. So that is a very interesting fact, along with all those random coincidences right there. Yeah, I mean,
1: obviously it is. I think it's very, very (laughs) telling. But one theory goes, just tying this back to Senator Frank Jones um, that Mansfield was um, somehow um, kind of let off from this crime owing to Jones's influence and so he was actually um, taken to trial or sorry the evidence was looked at by a grand jury um, but he ultimately William Mansfield was let off because of his alibi and as Justin just said that alibi was payroll records that placed him in Illinois at the time of the murder and um uh, you know, not only, uh, as Justin just said, would it have been probably quite easy to forge something like that or, you know, fudge, fudge uh, the numbers or the times on, on the pay stubs. I, I also, I don't know if you were able to, but I wasn't actually able to find out exactly where in, in Illinois uh, Mansfield was allegedly working. So potentially he may have actually been where his payroll said he was um, and had been able to. You know, go into Feliska for the weekend and then get back in time for his shift on the railroad. um yeah. I don't even know that that was out of the question,
0: yeah, I didn't uh I didn't really see anything specifically on any of that. I do know that he was from Blue Island, Illinois, um but that was really the only yes. specific I mean, with the exception of Monmouth, you know being the site of two of those. Uh, ax murders or whatnot or pipe murders Um, I really didn't see anything specific on where he might have been at like evidence-wise
1: exactly so that that whole the whole reason that he was exonerated by the grand jury merely because of these pay stubs um, to me it just doesn't hold water because that that is really quite a weak alibi when you think about it to me at least
0: that's a Um, really good point
1: um, mansfield he actually um brought a lawsuit um against uh james wilkerson who was the detective that brought these allegations against him and he was awarded uh, 2225 dollars which in today's money would be about $51,000 so that's mm. a really hefty sum and Wilkerson uh, absolutely believed that this was because of Jones's influence um, that Mansfield was able to to win this lawsuit to get let out and ultimately um, for the arrest of the Reverend who will dismiss And just one final thing that I don't know if you found, Justin, but um, when I was reading about William Mansfield, um, I read about um, a witness uh, called R.H. Thorpe, who was a restaurant owner from Shenandoah. Did you hear about this guy?
0: Nope, but I'm about ready to. (laughs) Tell me all about it.
1: So, um, again, just going back to the shaky alibi, um, this witness, R.H. Thorpe, um, he testified that he saw... um, Mansfield on the morning of the murders um, and he said he was boarding a train and he said that he'd just come from, he'd just walked from Villisca. Um, So if that is true then that completely blows out of the water, the alibi Um, and just to to put that in perspective for people that don't know the geography of the area, um, he uh, R.H. Thorpe saw him in Shenandoah which is roughly 37 minutes from Villisca by car nowadays.
0: Definitely good stuff.
1: Yeah, so I mean I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm quite heavily doubting this alibi, but that's just my <laughs>
0: opinion. <laughs> no, I trust me that that's actually a really good point. That is a really good point. <laughs> um, you're kind of killing my serial killer theory here, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I like the competition,
0: that, though. The <laughs> um, um, so do you want to start in with the uh, traveling preacher?
1: Yeah, sure. So this is um, the Reverend. Uh, well, actually, I'm not to be honest. This is a bit of a rookie mistake. I guess, but 100 percent sure what this guy's name is because uh, I read it as Reverend George <sighs> Kelly, but I've also read it as Lynn Kelly. So yeah,
0: I think um, I, I think his first name was Lynn, but he went by George. But then I also read <sighs> that his first name was George and his middle name was Lynn. And then I also read that his first name was George and then he had two middle names and then his last name was Kelly. So, Okay. (laughs) He was an English immigrant. Why do people name their kids like that, Ellie? Hey! George
1: is a very English name, so I'm going to say that his name was George Kelly. But, but to save confusion, let's just, um, we'll refer to him as Reverend Kelly. All right. You know, to be clear. So, um... As Justin just said he was an English minister um, and he'd immigrated to the United States and um, I guess a lot of a lot of the evidence against him to me at least is quite heavily circumstantial so um, he was in in town the night of the murders and we know this for a fact because he actually was at the children's Day ceremony that um the Moore family were at and the stillinger girls were at and we know he was there and um, Rather suspiciously, he left town the next morning between five five thirty a.m. Which obviously, you know, just that is purely circumstantial, but that that doesn't look good. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> he was uh, fascinated by the case and um, apparently wrote many letters to police and um, to investigators and even to the family of the deceased. And. Um, eventually one of these private investigators um, wrote to reverend kelly he wrote back to him um, and basically asked him for details of the crime um details that a killer would know and um kelly reverend kelly allegedly allegedly replied in great detail um to the point where he was possibly a witness or perpetrator to the crimes and now i think it's important to just point out at this stage that george kelly was known to have a mental illness um so I guess anything he says or does you have to take that with a pinch of salt because he was mentally ill Um, in 1914 um, he was arrested for sending obscene material to a woman who applied for a job as his secretary Um, and apparently this was I don't know exactly what he said but apparently it was so shocking and so obscene that the judge would not read it in the court so um, probably by today's standard it would be nothing but Uh, 1912
0: that's about what I was, thinking. I was like, yeah, probably make a schoolgirl giggle or something. but yeah. it could not have been that
1: bad. Exactly, but um, it was evidently it was enough um for for him to be sent to a mental hospital in uh, Washington D.C. So, it it was enough in those days for him to be institutionalized, and um, he didn't actually get arrested for the murders in Villisca until 1917, and um, that was following a confession. And I, I think at this point, I'd just like to point out that just, just because a person's confessed to a crime, that doesn't instantly mean that they've done it. And um, I'll probably go into this a bit more in the theories, but um, a lot of times, police will use physical violence or even just hold, withhold food, water, sleep. An interrogated person for hours, and that person will just, you know, being exhausted and hungry, will just say yes, fine, I did it just to get the police off their back. And, uh, you know, in in the similar vein, Kelly did recant his confession, so um, I believe that that was probably what went on here. Um, He was tried twice, and uh, the first trial ended in a hung jury, and I believe um, it was um, eleven in favour of acquittal and one thought he was guilty yeah. and then he was tried again and he was finally acquitted that time and um, I think you know particularly for that time in history people probably you know it was a lot more witch hunty than it is today so the fact that they acquitted him actually does count for a lot to me and yeah. um, there really can't have been anything too strong against him for a jury to acquit in my opinion. But that was most of what I had on um, Reverend Kelly. Did you have anything else, Justin?
0: Um, yeah. He was uh, he was just a little guy. You know, yes. he was he was five foot two, hundred and nineteen pounds. So him actually I that much figure. Oh yeah. He just <laughs> He's just like this little guy I want to put in my pocket and take places with me, you know. (laughs) But he was a traveling preacher. He rode the rails, and half the reason he was a traveling preacher was because there's no real congregation that wanted him around. Because he was technically probably a sexual deviant. Um, When he wanted to hire that stenographer or whatever she was, he wanted her to type everything up naked. He was definitely mental ill. He was institutionalized before and after Velisca. All your court things, that same same stuff that I found, Um, I actually did hear that the reason he confessed is they pretty much beat the hell out of him and hung him uh, upside down by his ankles over uh, some sort of second story building until he actually confessed to it.
1: Oh, my God. So, literally, he was tortured into confessing.
0: Yeah, he Quite was literally. literally got the shit kicked out of him. Um, he was left-handed. You know, that should be noted. And he... Another couple things were... He supposedly... He was on the train early morning... Uh, the morning the bodies were found. Now, an yeah. elderly couple did say that they heard him talk about the murders before the bodies were actually found but that old couple later recanted their statement said that it was not true other than that he actually had a shirt cleaned a week later with blood on it uh in in a nearby town personally i think that got blown out of proportion a little bit from what he says he had a bloody nose and uh the Whoever cleaned a shirt, dry cleaner, whatever you want to call them, actually stated that there was not very much blood on that shirt. But as soon as that knowledge came out, it just blew up. You know, you got the elderly couple like, oh, yeah, that weird little man was like, I knew about these ex-murders and, you know, before anybody even found the bodies, so... Yeah, well, did, did
1: you find out, um, with regards to that couple that were saying that um, he was talking on the train about the bodies, did you find out um, why they then recanted?
0: No, I didn't actually. Um, I believe it was during like grand jury hearings, and oh, okay. I can imagine one of two things happened. Either they got scared that they were going to get put in jail, or as soon as they put their hand on the Bible, you know, swear that they wouldn't lie in in the courtroom. They uh, didn't lie anymore. I mean, whether they feared for their lives because of him, or whether they were just, you know, blowing shit out of proportion, I really can't say. I didn't I didn't catch too much on the details of that. But when it did come down to grand jury time, that is when they recanted. And like you had said, that was in 1917 when he actually confessed to it.
1: That's actually, if that is true, that's, you know, extremely damning, because he would have said that before the bodies were discovered, but, um, yeah, I think it's very telling that they recounted that, so I I guess, personally, I wouldn't put too much weight in that.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, he was said, I can't remember why, but him and his uh, wife actually used to camp out in a tent in their, in, you know, various places, like, in a... You know, wherever they could find a spot, because his wife traveled around with him. And some of you are wondering, like, you know, how can like a sexual deviant, creeper, little guy like this have a wife? Well, I saw Uh, pictures. I saw pictures of of her. (laughs) Yeah, did you see pictures of her?
1: I did not see pictures. Should I?
0: Battle axe. That's all I gotta say. But yeah, huh?
1: At least he was married.
0: Yeah, Uh, he was. And I, and I will say this, too. Like, during the, the grand jury hearings and all that stuff, where he was actually in court and getting acquitted and all that stuff, there's actually photos of him with the Moore family, the surviving members, like the brother and all that stuff. Because, literally, really? the Moore family themselves do not believe that he did it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, okay. I saw a couple pictures. I'll post them on the uh, On the Facebook page in the comments when I go to post this episode, but they, like his, Joe's brother, and uh, he had actually several brothers, I believe, but at least one, one or two of his brothers and some other family members did not think that he did it. In all honesty, like from what I understand still to this day, uh, like half the town still thinks that Frank Jones had something to do with it, just because of the (laughs) raw motive, you know? personally I don't know I mean what 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 do you think what do you think happened Ellie
1: you wanna you wanna jump straight into our um conclusions
0: I mean unless you got anything more on on George
1: I did well I had one other suspect actually
0: oh well my <laughs> God go ahead and let's hear it
1: again I mean it's not I think as I said for well actually we've got two other suspects we've got Henry Lee Moore we need to cover him, I think. Yeah,
0: so that's actually a, probably a good idea.
1: <laughs> Henry Lee Moore, um, so I think the thing, the reason people look at him um, with suspicion is because he was actually convicted of the murder of his mother and his grandmother um, several months after the murders in Villisca. So he killed his mother and grandmother in December of 1912.
0: That um, was actually the uh, the murder in Missouri that I was telling you about. Of two in people. Missouri, in yep.
1: Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: that's that's correct.
1: See, you knew that and you forgot about him, different. Well,
0: I got caught up with that serial killer thing and I started, like, tracking <laughs> all the, you know, similarities and the weird coincidences and I just kind of rode that train, you know
1: that's fair that's fair um, <laughs> i know what it's like to go down a rabbit hole with a true crime case uh yeah As would be there from what i understand and please jump in here if i'm wrong but the murder of the mother and grandmother was actually financially motivated so i think yeah. that would set it apart from the villisca case at least but he was emily really moore was considered sus- a suspect in um a string of the Midwest Axe murders that were going on at the time and obviously was actually convicted of, of the murders in uh, Missouri. In terms of an alibi, I actually did not find that he had any alibi whatsoever. I couldn't find anything on that at all. As far as I'm aware, he had no alibi, unless you're aware of anything. Just then.
0: No, he, from what I understand, he really didn't have any alibi. He was... A convicted violent offender though from what i understand yes he was but that was really about all i read into it he he did have some problems with violence and yeah he killed his mom and his grandma with an (laughs) (laughs) axe
1: i guess just one thing i I should say you know nowadays if if a person got killed with an axe that would be a really you know unusual way of killing a person but back then um, this was the American Midwest and um, a lot of people lived on farms or did yeah. manual labor or agricultural work so axes were far more common then than they are now yes so it's not as crazy as you think it is that all these people got killed with axes because that would probably be the go-to weapon if you lived in the Midwest at that time
0: yeah pretty much yeah it, uh they were I mean you had to have one like the the Moore household did not have electricity, so I yeah. mean they were they had wood it that they had to it chop to
1: day.
0: yeah, that's what I hear and before we get into the theories we we were talking earlier for four hundred and like twenty eight dollars, anybody who wants to go stay in the Veliska Axe murder house can go do it. You can take one to six people, I believe for that price rate and stay the whole night now, I'm gonna do this, okay. I'm probably, I'm going to try my hardest not to go alone, but I am definitely going to try to do this. I'm, like, super excited about it right now.
1: (laughs) You have to, um, you have to tell us when you're going to do it, Justin, so that we can make sure you come out alive the next
0: day. Yeah, so like I told you, I was like, I'd prefer somebody going there so there was, like, photo or video evidence of, like, if a ghost kills me and somebody thinks I did it (laughs) myself. But no, if I do, I will definitely I will definitely live feed that shit in the Facebook group for sure. <laughs> I will too. But I'm definitely gonna do it no matter what. I have to. I don't know. Do you have anything left on uh
1: look up for him really more? Um, the last suspect I had was Sam Moya. Did you have oh, on him?
0: I didn't really look too much into him, but I did hear a little bit about it. It once I started getting into that one I kind of got sidetracked because it was kind of, I mean, it wasn't a bad theory, but I was just, I don't know, some of the some of the facts, and it just seemed like one of the weaker theories, so I just kind of ended up straying away from it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think the only thing that, that really is why I would uh, bring it up is because Sam Moyer, of all the suspects we have, he's the only one who was actually related to the Moore family. Um, and he was related to Joe Moore um, by his sister. So uh, Joe Moore's sister, Anna, married Sam Moyer. Yeah. Um, and he, <laughs> he was apparently described by Joe Moore as, quote, the only enemy I had in the world. So yeah. apparently they were real enemies um but the reason i think we can discount samoyer is that he apparently had a very strong alibi that put him in nebraska on the saturday and sunday um of the weekend the murders were committed
0: that is correct um it, it, and i actually read that uh moyer had said on more than one occasion that he was gonna he was gonna kill joe at some point in time that he wanted oh my to, God. he wanted to kill him. Um, yeah, he did it. I read that. I don't know when it was, whether it was around you know that time frame, but them they hated each other for some odd reason. <laughs> they really did. But after after I had read about the alibi, I kind of veered off in other directions that were more unexplained. So yeah,
1: I mean, I just I didn't really hear too much about him. I guess. As with all of the alibis that we've kind of come across, none of them seem 100% concrete. Um, yeah, I don't know how feasible it would be to go from Nebraska to Iowa in a weekend, but it seems like nobody, you know, despite the fact that this guy being, you know, an out, an open enemy of Joe Moore, nobody has really considered him a viable suspect. So yeah. I guess that speaks volumes.
0: Yeah, it does, and I mean by train. You know, it probably wouldn't take too god awful long, but at the mm. same time, I don't think whether you hated your brother-in-law or something or not, I don't think you're going to kill a shitload of kids along with them. You know? What yeah, I mean? exactly. But so I
1: think that that's me done for suspects.
0: I think you are correct. So let's hear your favorite one.
1: My personal opinion, um, and is what you actually just touched on there, is that. I think that any person who had an actual motive to kill any one person in that house would not have been responsible for this crime. And that probably sounds counterintuitive, but basically my thinking is if somebody had a grudge against Joe Moore or even against Sarah Moore, they would have found a time when, when Joe or Sarah were alone, when the kids were out of the house and they would have taken that opportunity to kill them. I don't understand why anybody with a grudge against one or both of the parents would take out their children and, and the two still girls. That to me seems, you know, you'd have to be really cold blooded to do yeah, that. Yeah. And if you then eliminate people who would have had a motive, that leaves you with the, the serial killers and the crazy. So this yeah. was, in my opinion, this was either somebody who killed because they enjoyed killing, or this was somebody who was severely mentally disturbed and maybe voices were telling them to kill and that's why they did it. Yeah. So with yeah. that being the case, I think Henry Lee Moore and William Mansfield could possibly fit that bill, although I would say if it was William Mansfield, I don't think it would have been done under the orders of Senator Jones, I think it would have been done because he's possibly the serial killer who, who perpetrated the string of axe murders in the Midwest. Around that time, but whoever did this, I personally think it was probably a serial
0: killer. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. It was, it was to an extent a crime of opportunity, because yeah. I I am gonna say serial killer. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like when, when the when the traveling reverend actually confessed to this, he literally said that God told him to do it. I mean, the guy had mental problems, but I really don't think being that size, and I don't think he... He's just a creepy little man. I don't think he'd have it in him to kill, like, you know, six kids and two adults. And on top yeah. of that, he would... I don't think he actually had time to case case this place out. Yeah, I think it's strange that he literally was on a train at, like, 4.30 in the morning leaving town that morning. Yeah, that's weird as shit. But... There was more than one people who left on a train that morning from Villisca. Um, yeah. I'm definitely going with the serial killer theory, whether it was William Mansfield or not. I mean, the fact that he obviously, like, killed his family, you know, with an axe, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, a a little, that's a red flag. He did work for the railroad, you know, it could possibly be him. But all these crimes were crimes of opportunity, and including the Villisca one. None of the weapons belonged to the killer. It was all the homeowners. Um, The fact that all the coincidences and all those killings within those few years were so coincidental that I don't think it's a coincidence. Um,
1: Yeah, too many similarities.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, it either ended with Mansfield or somebody got picked up on some other charges. Um, But I definitely think it was some kind of serial killer at that time who literally just enjoyed. I mean, I think they probably got to Velisca and they probably cased the place out because they literally knew where they were going and where they were, you know, who they had to kill first.
1: You know, just to kind of piggyback on what you said there, I think whoever did this possibly was at that children's day service and the reason i say that is because those uh cylinder children were not supposed to be in that house that night and if you were casing that house out on any other night you would know that there were four children that lived there and two adults you would not know that there was a guest bedroom that would have occupants in it that night so whoever did this knew that those girls were in that room that night when they ordinarily would not have been. And I've, I've done the virtual tour of the house and that guest bedroom is easy to overlook. You know, if you didn't know that, you, generally you wouldn't look for a bedroom on, on the ground floor or on the first floor of a house anyway. So whoever did this knew that those kids were in there.
0: And that might explain why the two sisters on the bottom floor were last because maybe he didn't know they were there and one of them woke up and that would yes. describe the defensive wounds and that's when he was like shit there's two more people in here
1: yeah that's, something that's like that
0: maybe him. Um, I mean maybe that explained the street lights being out you know what I mean <laughs> that's I mean he could have you know taken out the street lights beforehand and like literally like methodically planned it to an extent because I mean this was a frenzy kill I mean, yeah it was it was but I think it was somebody who had some serious problems because the fact of the the mirrors, the pictures, and the faces of the victims. Yes. And if all the, the faces of the victims that you cad, c- could see literally had no faces looking back at you. Yeah. Like, as gory he, as that sounds.
1: He wanted to destroy their faces.
0: Yes. Yes, whether it be something of them looking at him or, you know, him looking at himself through a mirror. But I definitely think it was a was a serial killer, just because of all the other murder murders within that two to three year period. I just it's too hard to ignore, I guess.
1: I I agree, um, and I think just to go go off what you said about the the mirrors and the pictures and the reflective surfaces have been covered with cloth, and that really weird slab of bacon being left on the floor. Now, yeah. if you were somebody who was hired to go and kill a person, would you really bother wasting time hanging cloths over the mirrors or leaving them on the floor? But who wouldn't. If anybody who went there needing the motive, you know, if someone had a grudge and wanted to kill them, they wouldn't fuck around and, you know, eat in their house and hang out there a bit and leave, obviously with somebody who was mad or mentally disturbed. To yeah. me
0: at least no I... to me. Yeah, I would I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. Did you
1: was there, did you have any like final thoughts wrap up just then or?
0: Not really. I mean at the end of the day I don't know, I hate saying it just because I talked so much shit about how bad I want to go to that house and spend the night. <laughs> but at the end of the day it's I it's honestly kinda of sad that a family is actually that people have actually bought this house just because of that and just exploit the shit out of eight people getting butchered with an axe. Now, like I said, I honestly feel really bad about saying that because of the whole, I want to stay there, but I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it says a lot about society nowadays, I suppose. You know, got to make that dollar, you know, and, you know, I mean, the, the Stillinger's dad became obsessed with this case. I mean, his two daughters were murdered in that house, and they weren't even supposed to be there that night you know i think a lot of people forget that and you know there's a lot of victims in this so
1: that's yeah that's a really good point and um, particularly when so many of the victims were children but in in a way i think it's good that people are still talking about this you know they're not forgotten
0: they're, they're still people trying to solve this i mean there was yeah. actually an active open investigation for 10 years on this and still to this day this is like a uh you know an amateur detective's you know daydream trying to figure this out so want to call her quits for the night
1: yeah i think that's i've said my piece on this um but it was it was a really interesting case to research and um As always, it's been a lot of fun doing this, so thank you
0: again for having me. Hey, no problem. I'm glad you joined me. You did a killer job, just like uh, the last time. And I know me and you here sometime in the near future got a really, really big case that we're going to be working on. So (laughs) I suppose, uh, thank you, Ellie, for coming back and doing a killer job again. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure the listeners will definitely enjoy it. I never got any. Bad feedback. You did a great job last time, so thank you very much for for doing this. Thank you. All right. Well, I suppose uh, until then, I'll see uh, everybody on the uh, flip side.